You're listening to a sermon preached at Sojourn Church, J-Town. This is our Advent series called God Revealed. God, we just thank you so much for, as I've said these last couple uh, weeks, God, I'm just thankful that we have not been left in the dark. We know who you are because you showed yourself to us. And so we give thanks for that. We don't take that for granted. And we're so thankful for that, Lord. We're humbled by that. And so once again, may you uh, open our eyes, awaken our hearts to help us see uh, who you are, what you are like, God. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Let's give it up for June. She did great. Thank you. You guys can just be seated. All right. So I got, uh, here's what I want to do this morning. I I, want to unpack a couple questions. So uh, one question is coming out of the text, obviously. I think this is what the question, the the text is kind of leaning toward and talking about. And then one question is uh, for us to kind of reflect upon. So the first question is this. I want to unpack what is God like? What is he like? How does he behave? And I think this is what we see in this passage of scripture. And then in light of, as we unpack what he is like, uh, here's the question that I have for you guys. Um, What comes to your mind when you think about God? What comes into your mind when you think about God? That's kind of how we're bookending. So what is God like? And then we're landing the plane. What comes into your mind when you think about God. Uh, this first question here, what is God like? It, it, um, it's revealed in a really um, tragic context, so to speak. Um, so I'm going to kind of share briefly here the context, but just this is, this is kind of, this is how bad it is. Just imagine um, that your spouse cheated on you on your wedding night. I mean, when a spouse is unfaithful, it's tragic, it's heartbreaking. I mean, I can't even put words to it to kind of describe it, but just imagine if that happened on your wedding night. That's how one person kind of describes what's going on in this context here where we get this uh, very profound revelation of what God is like. So the nation of Israel has been rescued out of Egypt. All right, they've experience these massive 10 plagues, this power of God that's been put on display. They get to the Red Sea. God parts the Red Sea. They go out on dry ground, and he brings in the Red Sea and destroys Pharaoh and his army. And I mean, all these things that they, they are that's putting on display, they're, they're seeing who God is. And they're, they're traveling through the wilderness. They eventually get to Mount Sinai. Moses goes up the mountain, and God establishes his covenant, his law with them, and it's written on these tablets. And meanwhile, uh, the nation of Israel is getting a little impatient because Moses has been gone for a long time. They don't think Moses is going to come back. And so they convince uh, Moses' right-hand man, who's Aaron, to, uh, to make them a god, you know, a visible image that they can worship. And so uh, they take all the gold that they got from Egypt, right? They plundered Egypt, that... God allowed them to do that, take all the gold, melt it down, and Aaron builds and fashions this, this golden calf. Most of us, some of us are pretty familiar with this story. And so this golden calf gets fashioned here, and there's this massive worship service that goes on, yelling, screaming, you know, singing along. And this is kind of their chant, you know, these are the gods who rescued us out of Israel. So I just, that's, this is what why one writer says, this is like, you know, um, your spouse cheating on you on your wedding night. This is, you know, 
days, maybe months away from all that they experienced in their rescue. They've been slavery for 400 years. God miraculously saved them out of Egypt, out of nothing they did. And they, he miraculously parted the sea and allowed them to go on dry ground. I mean, they're, they're days away from all of this. And here they are singing, worshiping, going nuts over this image and saying, this is the God that rescued us out of Egypt. So God tells Moses, hey, you're, this nation's going nuts. You better go down there and check out what's going on. So I'm paraphrasing a little bit, obviously, uh, adding the loud jury translation in some parts. And so Moses goes down, smashes those first stones. There's an episode that goes on there with stuff going on with him and Aaron. You can go home and read that. Uh, but in this begins this conversation where we get to where we are today uh, between God and Moses. And God comes to Moses and says, look, I'm done. I'm done with this nation. I'm going to wipe them out, and I'm going to raise up a people out of you. And so Moses begins this dialogue with God, and in this conversation with God, he eventually persuades God not to do this, to relent. And God chooses to do this, and he, and he chooses to um, show forgiveness and mercy and grace to a people that do not deserve it. He chooses to show mercy, forgiveness, and grace to a people that do not deserve us. And, and this, is, this is so profound for Moses. Like sometimes I, um, I, I'll, I'll personalize this. Sometimes I have a tendency to, to, to forget how profound this was because we have the fuller revelation. We have a full, under, not, not a complete, but we have a fuller understanding of who God is in Christ. We we know he's forgiving. We know he's gracious. We know he's kind. But Moses didn't. Like there's a, there's a progressiveness of, of God revealing himself to Moses. And, and Moses had no idea what kind of character or what, what God is like. And, and for him to, to see that God is going to choose to forgive and show kindness and grace to a people that did not deserve it absolutely blew him away. And this is what prompted a question here at the end of chapter 33. Because in essence, when he, when he sees God doing this, and this is how he's going to act, it's like, I want to know more about who this God is. I'm absolutely blown away and stunned that this is how you're going to treat this people that do not deserve this. I want to know more about what you're like. And so he asks this question in verse 18 of chapter 33. He says this, then Moses said, please, or it's not a question, it's more of like a declaration. Please, let me see your glory. And so when Moses is asking to see the glory of God, what is he asking for? Well, he's asking for this. He wants to see the face of God. So when he says, I want to see your glory, God, he is in essence saying, God, I want to see your face. I want to see your face here. Now, where, where do I get that? Well, I get that a couple of verses later in verse 20 when God responds like this. You cannot see my face, Moses. For humans cannot see me and live. Now, why? Why? Why face? Why does Moses want to see God's face? Because the face reveals a person. Human face is amazingly expressive. You can know someone more fully when you look into their face. I mean, it's it's one of the difficulties that all of us experience over these last six months when we've had to wear a mask everywhere we go, right? It's just, I mean, you see partial, but man, there's, there's something about noticing and recognizing 
someone's face that you know them more fully. I don't know if you guys have experienced this and, you know, you're at Walmart or Kroger or wherever and you, you run by somebody and they'll stop you or whatever and say, hey, Lyle. And they'll stop and go, oh, yeah, that's Joan, whatever, you know, like I didn't recognize you. Why didn't I recognize you? Well, half your face is covered up. It's sometimes hard to know who you are just by looking at your eyes. That's why you know, there's so many reasons why I don't love Zoom stuff right now, but I know it's our world. Uh, but what makes it even doubly more hateful from my perspective is when I get on a Zoom call and I've got one square that's got black and a name or the stock photo. It's like, no, 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 we're not doing that. Get your face up there right now. Turn that camera on. I want to see you, right? There's there's something about seeing, this is not like, um, uh, you know, being trite or, you know, all about appearance. No, there's something about seeing someone's face, all of it, to where you can know them on a personal, intimate level. And to see God's face, as one writer says, would be to see who God is, to penetrate the mystery of the God who characteristically hides himself in a cloud. But the problem is this, and this is what God says here. You can't see God's face as a human being and live. You cannot. He's, it's too radiant. It's too beautiful. It's, it's too glorious. Just like we can't go and look at the sun with our, with our eyes without some kind of filter, right? You know, remember the when the eclipse happened a few years ago, you had to go get the glass, you know, even though it was hidden by, you know, sort of a, a darkness or whatever, you still couldn't look at it without having some kind of covering or it would, it would damage your eyes. The same with, same with God. We cannot, because he's so holy, so radiant and beautiful, we cannot see him face to face with our human eyes. And so, so what he says to Moses, he says, I'm not going to permit you to see me, but I am going to give you the privilege to hear what I'm like. You can't see what I'm like. I'm not going to show you my face. But I am going to grant you the privilege to hear what I'm like. And that's what we pick up here in the passage that we read starting in verse 4 of chapter 34. So after listening to these instructions that God gave Moses, verse 4, Moses cut two stone tablets like the first one. He, he got up early in the morning and Taking the two stone tablets in his hand, he climbed Mount Sinai just as the Lord had commanded him. In verse 5, the Lord came down in a cloud, stood there with him, and proclaimed his name, the Lord. The Lord passed in front of him and proclaimed, the Lord. The Lord is compassionate and gracious God. He's slow to anger, abounding in faithful love and truth, maintaining faithful love to a thousand generations, forgiving iniquity, rebellion, and sin. So what happens in this scene is that God comes. He can't see him. He's, he comes down in a cloud. He stands there with him. He proclaims his name. He proclaims what he is like. And we see five kind of qualities of his character. So the first one we saw there, that our God is a compassionate God. He understands and he empathizes with you. Just let that sit with you for just a second. I don't know what this Advent season is bringing for you, right? Or this Christmas time is bringing for you. I'm sure it's a, a wide range of emotions. Maybe you feel isolated and feel alone and 
Um, maybe your heart is broken. I, I don't know what is all going on here, but know this. This is what God is like. He is a compassionate God. He understands. He empathizes with you. Our God is gracious. He, he deals with us based on his love, not merit. He deals with us based on his, his love for us, not based upon some things that we do for him. He is slow to anger, meaning he's patient and calm, non-reactive. He doesn't fly off the handle. He, he doesn't overreact. He's not impulsive. He's abounding. And you can use this word. It's, it's, it's implied in the second part of it. So you could say it if you want to read it. He's abounding in faithful love and he's abounding in truth. No other place in the Old Testament is this, these characters used or these qualities used other than for God. He's, he's great. He's abounding in faithful love. And that word faithful is a difficult word for us to translate in English because it just doesn't carry all the nuance of what it is in Hebrew. The Hebrew word is hesed. I like saying that. Say it with me. Hesed, right? It's kind of, you know, okay, maybe not. Just maybe just let me say it. And you guys just look at me like I'm weird or something. But the word also may be translated in your, uh, in some translations as steadfast. It's a combination of love and loyalty where it emphasizes his loyalty and his relationship with his people. He has a steadfast, a faithful, loyal love for us. It's, it's, it's great. It's abounding. He's also truthful. Or some translations have faithfulness. God is the one who keeps his word. And this is the answer to the question that I posed at the beginning. What is God like? How does it behave? He is compassionate. You can keep it up there just for a second, man. Sorry, brother. He is compassionate. This is what he's like. He is gracious. He's slow to anger. He's abounding in steadfast love, in faithful love, and in truth. This is the clearest revelation of what he is like in the entirety of the Old Testament. So much so that this becomes the most often quoted sayings in the Old Testament. Old Testament writers keep coming back to this, these five character qualities of God and saying, this is what he's like. I'll give you a sampling of two. And this is just scratching the surface. If you read the Psalms, you'll see this coming up over and over. And one of them is found in Psalm 103, which is uh, one of my favorite Psalms of David, where it says this, starting in verse 7. He made known his ways to Moses, his deeds to the people of Israel. And then verse eight, 8 is almost verbatim what is spoken in Exodus 34. The Lord is compassionate and gracious. He's slow to anger, abounding in love. He will not always accuse, nor will he harbor his anger forever. And look how David describes this kind of steadfast, hessed love that he declared in verse 8. Verse 11, he says this, for as the High as the heavens are above the earth, so great is his love for those who fear him. In case you didn't know that, that's an immeasurable kind of love. That's an infinite distance that there's no tool that we have that's able to measure it. We can kind of sort of guesstimate the calculation is, but David is wanting us to see this is an immeasurable love. It's an infinite love. Another place where we see this refrain used is used in a very odd place because it's used by an Old Testament prophet as a reason for his disobedience to God. 
Do you hear that? That this Old Testament prophet is so convinced that this is how God acts, it actually becomes the reason for his disobedience. Jonah chapter 4. Listen to what he says. Jonah was greatly displeased and became furious. Why did he become furious? Because he eventually obeyed God after the whole big fish situation. Go home, it's a great, great little book to read if you've never read it. Uh, but eventually he goes into the city of Nineveh, preaches uh, to repent, and they repent. And God relents. He forgives them. And Jonah's ticked off. They're like, I'm not happy about that. I wanted you to wipe these people out. He goes on in verse 2. He prayed to the Lord, please, Lord, isn't this what I said while I was still on my, in my own country? That's why I fled toward Tarsus in the first place. Because why? I knew, I am confident of this, that you're a gracious and compassionate God, slow to anger, abounding in faithful love, and the one who relents from sending disaster. The very exact phrases that we see in Exodus 4. And now, Lord, take my life from me, for it is better for me to die than to live. Jonah was so convinced that this is how God acts, that he disobeyed and he got angry with God for him acting consistent with his character. So look, guys, look, these are, sometimes I, you know, when you kind of unpack or begin to unpack some of what God is like and you get sort of into these attributes of God, sometimes they can, you know, maybe feel like cold theological attributes that are stuck in this big, thick, huge theological book that none of us read, right? Sometimes we can kind of make them feel like so abstract or whatever, but I, but I want to help you see that these are not some kind of cold theological attributes that are just stuck in a book. These are uh, character qualities of how God relates to his people. These are relational kind of qualities here. And so just to just sort of hit this home of how uh, I want to take this out of this, you know, kind of like, well, these big theological terms that describe God and bring them home to help us see that these are relational terms here. So if your spouse would come home today or this week after dropping your car off at the mechanic and would, would come home and begin to describe your mechanic in this way, man, that mechanic is so gracious, you know, kind, steadfast in his love, slow to anger. I mean, all of these are relational terms. And if you're hearing that, you might be a little bothered that they're describing the mechanic in such a way. It's like, that sounds really intimate. Well, that's what, you, what I want you to feel here, that these are relational terms. And it's, um, it's how God is relating, not just to like uh, generic people, you know, out here, you know, that we don't know who. No, this is how God is relating to you right now, at this moment, regardless of whatever happened to you this week. God is relating to you, his posture toward you is that he's compassionate. He empathizes with you. He is gracious to you right now. He is, he is slow. I want to just kind of keep that going for a long time to anger. He's patient with you. He's abounding in hesed love and faithfulness. Yes, he's, he does this for 
all people, I'm just trying to bring it down to where we kind of personalize it and let you hear that this is how he relates to you right now. Do you believe this? I'm not trying to say this in any kind of condemning way. I'm just trying to say it in more in an invitational language. And do you believe that this is how God relates to you? That this is sort of, you know, uh, the major key of God. <laughs> like this is what shouts off the pages of the Bible. These kind of characteristics of what God is like. I think one of the ways, and this is not the only way, but I think one of the ways that you can kind of determine uh, sort of the level of, of your belief and how God relates to you like this, if you really do believe that this is how he is relating to you right now, is to pay attention to your own self-talk. What do you, what's the interior dialogue that's going on inside of you? I mean, all of us are talking to ourselves. I mean, I have a tendency to do it to where I get caught. But all of us, you know, move my mouth and nothing's coming out. I actually really did get caught one day at Kroger. This friend of mine goes like, wow, what are you doing? <laughs> it's like, ah, oh, you caught me talking to myself. But all of us are doing it. Like, what's the dialogue? Are you compassionate toward yourself? Are you gracious? Are you kind? When you're talking to yourself about you? I mean, I don't know about you. I, I, I find it easier to, number one, extend compassion to others. I find it somewhat easier to receive compassion and kindness from others. And sometimes it's still received with like a, um, a little bit of a but. But if you only knew, you probably wouldn't be treating me like that. So the reason why I think some of us have a difficulty really being kind to ourselves is because we know ourselves a little more fully than someone else does. We know what's going on up here. We know our own thoughts. We know what's going on in our own heart. We know the gap between, between what we confess we believe and then what we really do. And I would say, but before you, that Sometimes that kind of language that we speak toward ourselves and how we beat ourselves up, we actually, whether we consciously or, or subconsciously do this, we have a tendency to project this upon God the Father because God the Father knows us fully. And if he knows me fully, then it's hard for me to believe that he's compassionate toward me, gracious toward me, kind toward me, slow to anger toward me. 
Because if I was God, I would be perpetually frustrated with me. Maybe pay attention how you treat yourself will kind of give you some signals of whether you really believe that this is how God relates to you. And in case you're still struggling, whether God does relate to you in this way, in case you're still having some doubts and not fully convinced, God has helped us out tremendously because he put skin on. So that not only do we hear it, we can see it. And that's what John does here in his prologue in chapter 1. It's powerful. And I, it's one of the reasons why I, I do believe that the Bible is the word of God because there's so much uh, continuity between the Testaments. And so when you read here, and we're going to read in just a few minutes, just four verses here in John chapter 1 as he opens up his book, he is wanting us to make the connections to Exodus chapter 34. And you will hear it. You will hear how he's trying to make you make these connections because this is the passage that John has in mind here when he says this, starting in verse 14, the word became flesh and he dwelt among us. We observed. Some translations have see. We have, we have not only heard, we have seen his glory. And what was Moses' request? God, I want to see your glory. And what does that mean? I want to see your face. He goes on, the glory as the one and only son from the father, the one who is full, abounding is another translation that we can use there, of grace and truth. Verse 15, talking about John the Baptist here, John testified concerning Christ, can explain, this is the one of whom I said, the one coming after me, ranks ahead of me because he existed before me. Indeed, we have all received grace upon grace from his fullness. For the law was given through Moses, grace and truth come through Jesus Christ. And here's, listen, verse 18. See the connections from Exodus 34. No one has ever seen God. The only, the one and only son who is himself God in the flesh, God with skin on, is at the father's side. And look what it says here. He has revealed. He has shown him. So the so the connections here are obvious for us. So the five qualities of how God acts that we see in Exodus 34 are summed up in two in John. And what were they? Say them out loud. They're, that Jesus came full of, say it out loud. What is it? Grace and truth. So, so truth connects to the God abounding in truth or abounding in faithfulness. And then the first four characters John sums them up in one word, and that word is grace. So mercy, gracious, st slow to anger, steadfast love, all four of those speak of God's generosity toward his people. That's what grace is. And so what Moses heard but was not allowed to see, Jesus made visible. And that's why we celebrate. That's why we sing. That's why... Man, we remember and, and still remember with joy and lament and longing because Jesus came and made God's face visible. It's what John is after when he says in verse 14, we have seen his glory. I love how one writer puts this uh, in kind of a, a good language here for us to think about. The divine character, the steadfast love and faithfulness, or as John says, that grace and truth happened in Jesus. Jesus' whole being and story were the 
steadfast love and faithfulness of God that's been put into action. So just, you know, I mean, maybe this is a big feat. If it's not, I'd go for it. Maybe in the next two weeks, you just read a gospel. Matthew, Mark, Luke, read John's gospel. And every time you see Jesus encounter someone, pay attention to how he acts. That is God in the flesh. And you will see that it's consistent to what we see in Exodus 34. It is not different. It is the same God that we see in the Old Testament as well as the New Testament. Two little insights. Do you guys remember Zacchaeus? Luke 19. Zacchaeus, wee little man, wee little man was he. He climbed up in a sycamore tree. I'm losing the rest of the psalm. But here's a despised, hated tax collector, absolutely hated, but he was stunned by Jesus' love and embrace of him. You look at the, the women that Jesus encountered, those that were considered sexually immoral in that, in that time, you see one in Luke 7, you see one in, in John chapter 4, you see another one in John chapter 8. And every time Jesus engaged him, he engaged him with respect and graciousness, so much so that he offended onlookers. In John chapter 4, when he met with that woman at the well, he gently, gently points out the wreckage of her many failed relationships with men and invites her to find contentment and satisfaction and Jesus, in that famous passage in John chapter 8, where this woman was, was dragged out, who was caught in the act of adultery, had this crowd around him, all the religious leaders wanted to throw stones at her and kill her. And they, they asked a question to Jesus, and Jesus responds in such a miraculous way. Hey, he was without sin, cast the first stone, and eventually everybody left. And all was left was Jesus and this woman. And it's beautiful what he says in one breath. Neither do I condemn you. Go and sin no more. I love how Tim Keller says this. Here we see the counterintuitive, right? But brilliant conjunction of both truth and love. Both a patient passion for justice and a commitment to mercy He is full of grace and truth. You see Jesus, you see God. It's God with skin on who's full of grace and truth. He is one who is compassionate, gracious, slow to anger, abounding love and faithfulness. And this is how Jesus relates to you right now. Right now. So if last week's question was this, what do you need from God right now? Here's this week's question. What comes into your mind when you think about God? And if you're joining us online, I would love for you to kind of put in your comments, a little comment section there. We'd love to kind of hear what is, 
What is the answer to that question? If you're here right now and obviously in person with us, I would encourage you if you've got a piece of paper or your phone or, or whatever, but I would just, what is, write down immediately what comes into your mind when you think about God. The reason why this is such an important question, and this is coming from a guy named A.W. Tozer in his little book called A Knowledge of a Holy. He says this, what comes into our minds when we think about God is the most important thing about us. Just think about that. Sit with that. What comes into your mind immediately when you think about God, it is the most important thing about you. He goes on to say later on that paragraph, the gravest question before the church is always God himself. And the most, I'm not going to try to say this word. It means serious, amazing, and important. I think it's pretentious, whatever. I don't think it's that. that. That sounds like a different word. So just bear with me. But the most important, serious, amazing factor about any human being is not what he or she at a given time may say or do. But here's the most important thing. What they in their deep heart conceives God to be like. This may be the most important question that you think about this Christmas. What comes into your mind when you think about God? Emily Freeman in one of her podcasts, one of her episodes, Reflecting upon this question says this. If that is true, that this question that A.W. Tozer has written, what comes into our minds when we think about God is the most important thing about us, then look what she says here. Then a true view of God will form our lives in him. What is a true view of God? We just saw it. Exodus 34. And a false view of God will deform us away from him. A true view of God will form our lives in him. A false view of God will deform us away from God. Here's an example of this. Um, I've, not, I've not read a lot of Puritan writers. I've read some, you know. Um, there's a lot of, obviously, great wisdom and uh, great insights and their intimacy they have with the Lord is just draws you in. Um, one old Puritan, his name is Richard Sibbs. We have an awesome picture of him right here. He's sporting a pretty, pretty awesome beard there. Very sojourn style beard, I guess. Um, I can't do that. I can't do a beard. It's just not in my body for some reason. Uh, but he uh, became known as uh, the honey mouth preacher. That was his nickname. They made it fly today, you know, but back then it kind of worked. And the reason why he got this name, the honey mouth or this nickname, the honey mouth preacher, is because he spoke so winningly, I love that word, winningly of the kindness and love of God. And it wasn't just because Sibs was born with kind of this sunny disposition or if you're an Enneagram fan, he was, you know, a high seven, you know, all about fun, enjoyment, you know, like everything's glass half full. You can find something that's awesome. I mean, maybe that's part of it, but, but I don't think that's all of it. It was, it was the, his adamant view that it's our view of God that shapes us most deeply. We become like what we worship. One author said this about Sibs. It was the knowledge that God is so sunny 
so radiant with goodness and love that made Sib such an attractive model of God-likeness. Translation, if you believe that the core of who God is, the major key of what he is like, is that he is one who is compassionate, gracious, slow to anger, abounding in love and faithfulness. As we draw near to him through Christ, that's who we become like. So not only do we experience this for our own souls, which I need, but the other thing is that others get to experience this when they're in your presence. That's why this question is so important. What comes into your mind when you think about God? If you're not a Christian here this morning, I, my invitation for you is to really ponder on this question that maybe, maybe, I'm not saying this is the reason, but maybe the reason why you've kind of kept God at an a, you know, arm's distance here, that kind of this unwillingness to surrender to him is because you have a false view of who he is. He's not an angry taskmaster. He's not, he's not a disappointed, frustrated dad that's always looking down on you and saying, man, you're always a disappointment. No, that is not who he is. He's not an anxious boss. No, he's a, he's a loving father who cares for you, who loves you, who is for you, and ultimately died for you. So spend some time this week answering that question, thinking on that question, because possibly your false view of God has kept you away from him. If you're a follower of Jesus Christ, then I'm going to encourage you to do the same thing. I don't know if you own, own a journal. Most young ladies and ladies do. Most men don't, which is fine. It's not like a moral thing. It's okay. Um, I have a journal, but it's not like I write in it every day either. It's just something I, every once in a while, kind of have some thoughts or whatever. Maybe you do a phone. I don't care what you do. You know, get a piece of paper, a journal, a phone, something. And I just, I encourage you to find a morning, an evening, an afternoon, find 15, 30 minutes where you have this piece of paper, journal, whatever it is, and nothing else before you, not your phone. Turn the stupid thing off. Put it somewhere else. Get alone. And write down everything that comes to your mind when you think about God. And do this in honesty. And maybe take John 4 or Luke 19 and sit with these stories throughout this week, asking the Holy Spirit to warm your hearts that you would be drawn into this beautiful God that has shown himself in Jesus, one who is compassionate, gracious, slow to anger, great in love and faithfulness. Let's pray together. 
Hey, I'm Lyle Drury and the lead pastor at Sojourn Church J-Town. Thanks for listening. We are here to reach people with the gospel, build them up as a church, and send them into the world to be a faithful, loving presence. For more sermons, info about our church, or ways you can support our ministry, visit sojournchurch.com slash jtown.